Hello and welcome to the Next Level Sunday Show. I'm your host, Tim Miller, with my best buddy, JVL, coming live from North Jersey. JVL, how you doing? Tim, happy Memorial Day weekend, buddy. We've got a great Memorial Day episode. We did an interview on Tuesday of this week with Josh Lyman himself, Bradley Whitford. Ugh. <sighs> So good. It was good. Uh, we taped it before all the DeSantis nonsense. Uh, and so, you know, it's just a nice little bit of, it's a little bit of candy here. New Orleans would call it a little snowball for your uh, for your Memorial Day weekend. We talk about the West Wing and how politics has changed and whether his, his views on the show have evolved over time. Looking back, given all the craziness that's happened, talk about his career. And also acting Ju- in yeah, Juilliard, of fun too. Stuff. So you will enjoy it. Uh, oh. But before that, I wanted to get into one substantive item. You know, I think we've done a lot of DeSantis analysis on, on you know, the, the performance, if you want to call it that, in the Twitter space, uh, his campaign's positioning, a lot of strategery. I want to play a clip that I think betrays a little bit of information about the substance of what a Ron DeSantis presidency would look like and ruminate on that a little bit before you get your Bradley Whitford dessert. Sebastian, can you play that? What do you tell the folks, the Trump voters who say, Ron DeSantis is lining up with the establishment wing of the party, the Carl Rose, the, you know, Paul Ryan's over at Fox. And, and you know, they, they're very concerned about that. Well, I can tell you this there. I have not spoken to Paul Ryan since I've been governor. I've met Carl Rove once in my life. They are not involved who? in my Paul political who? operations. So that's just the manufactured garbage that people put out there online. So if people are telling you that, you know, I'd hope that they'll uh, they'll look at the facts rather than do that. You also look at my record. How many establishment Republicans would have sent illegal aliens to Martha's Vineyard? How many establishment Republicans uh, would have stood up against Disney? How many establishment Republicans would have signed the bill that I just signed to ban land purchases from people affiliated with the CCP in the state of Florida? We're now being sued by the ACLU uh, for that. How many establishment Republicans would have leaned in to support our children against the pronoun Olympics? We banned the pronoun Olympics in our schools. We're the first state to do that. How many you, you establishment here. JVL, what do you make of the the substance of of the Ron DeSantis campaign and the Ron DeSantis message? Is that something that appeals to you as a as a former, you know, John McCain Republican? You see a lot of overlap there. No, I uh, I don't. I mean, it's it's not sustainable. Is the problem like he can say that I haven't spoken to Paul Ryan and I haven't met Karl Rove, but like, here's the problem: Ron DeSantis may not want the establishment. The establishment wants Ron DeSantis and everybody from Jeb Bush to Mitch McConnell is lined up for him. And at some point, his denials about like, I don't I've never even met that guy. I mean, you know, he's, he's like Peter denying Jesus three times before the cock crows. And I just don't see how that's going to work. And he feels like here's why he thinks very defensive, too, isn't it? Yeah, so defensive. <laughs> but here's why he thinks it could work. I will do the politics first and the policy. Here's why he thinks it could work. He knows he's got the Mitch McConnell's of the world by the balls because he's their only out. Right. And so he can do that. Like he can slap them in the face over and over again and and expect that they'll still come home to him. Now, I think that the weakness of his campaign is making that proposition a little riskier than it was a month or two months ago. I think they're starting to look around. But I think he feels like he can do that. Uh, will that actually yeah, but work? The voters will notice. Yeah, will the voters? Right. I mean, that's the yeah. problem, right? I mean, Mitch and and Jeb, like those yeah. guys will stay with him no matter what he does to them. You know, he can rail them as, as hard as he wants. But voters, you know, again, like the anti-swampy types are going to look at that and be like, wait, well, I'm, 
I'm sorry, bro. Right. Well, what? and and I think that he risks losing potentially some people that that you know might throw their vote away for Tim Scott or Mike Pence. Right. He risks some people on that side. And then to your point on the MAGA yeah. side of the equation, it's just like the try hard element of it. It's going to convince some people, but is it going to convince enough? And he still just smells like a Paul Ryan Republican, whether he wants to or not. I think it's worth though settling for a moment on the actual kind of like agenda that he put out there. Right. It is the government is going to punish corporations that say the wrong thing. The government is going to tell schools and teachers what they can and cannot teach the federal government, I guess. Um, You know, the Mm -hmm. the government is going to do human trafficking to own the lips, I guess. (laughs) Right. Um, I forgot the poor (laughs) thing oh, the China thing. And and, uh, trans stuff. The trans of the government is going to tell parents what they can and can't do in terms of like, you know, the health and welfare of their their children. Right. So that is what, what he lays out there is always anti-establishment. I think that that is very telling because it also speaks to there's this we got all a little bit into the personal kind of media criticism side of the Nate Silver thing earlier this week. But but it's interesting to me what a lot of I think these contrarian you know, Nate Silver types and a lot of the center right types don't realize is they have lost suburban voters, red dog voters, bulwark voters, real voters, not us, not the pundits, not the commentators, the real voters, because they listen to that clip of of him talking on Eric Bowling's show. And they're like, this is just, this is not what I signed up for. When I signed up for compassionate conservatism, when I signed up for John McCain, when I signed up for the shining city on the hill stuff, it wasn't what they signed up for. Now, some of them still hold, you know, conservative beliefs and disagree with Joe Biden on various things. But that agenda that he's pushing forth is a very big departure and if DeSantis is supposed to be the guy that brings those folks back into the fold, that's a that's a ton of baggage that he's carrying before you even get into the Trump baggage. Yeah, but the other thing is those positions that he laid out, yeah. those are now the mainstream Republican right. positions, right? It isn't. That's right. He's not out there on on the fringe anymore. the The window moved, and the people who still hold to the shining city on the hill, compassionate conservative, McCain Republican. I mean, those are what two percent of the party, and everybody yeah, else right. has left. Right. The, the, the people who were interested in that stuff ain't Republicans no more. And so there's a weird thing where he's like, look at all this transgressive stuff I did when his transgressive stuff is all exactly where the Republican Party voters are right now. The median position yeah. of Republican Party voters. <laughs> uh, anyway, well, we get into a lot of other stuff with Bradley Whitford. I hope you guys enjoy it. Um, just want to promote uh, a couple things Bradley's got. Uh, he is just has become such a passionate advocate. He works on the Brady campaign for guns. We talked about that a little bit. Um, we didn't get into this, but I, I, I do really want to shout out the Be a Hero Fund, which he's working on with Adi Barkin, who's a really inspiring guy. If you never heard of Adi Barkin, look up the Be a Hero Fund. It particularly is raising money for ALS, but has expanded its scope broadly, and his story is amazing. So I hope you enjoy this episode. I hope you enjoy your Memorial Day weekend. We'll see you back here on Wednesday for the Standard Next Level with my besties, JVL and Sarah. Peace. Enjoy the sun. Welcome back to the Next Level Sunday show. I'm Tim Miller with my BFF, Jonathan V. Last, and my aspiring kind of friend slash uncle figure. You might know him from the West Wing or Revenge of the Nerds 2 colon nerd sesh. Uh, Bradley Whitford. Uh, it's great to see you, Tim. 
Colon Nerds in Paradise. Colon Nerds in Paradise. Yes. I'm just going to do this. Uh, the best West Wing bit about how you bet Toby over having to introduce people by saying, I work at the White House. <laughs> and so I'm too, uh, how embarrassing that is to say, I work at the White House. I'm just owning this right now by saying the impetus for this was that I saw Bradley Whitford at the White House. He was walking in. I was walking in. He was walking out. I'm like, <laughs> let's do a podcast. Is there a more embarrassing way to book a podcast than that? It was a very strange moment. I spent a day there walking around. And as an actor, you are acutely aware of the fact that you get way, way too much attention given your contribution to society. And <laughs> there is no place I feel that more than when I'm in the fucking White House. And people are more excited to see me than they are to see Gene Sperling. Gene's contributions to society. Let's not overstate <laughs> it. Um, all right. Well, first, I want to talk to you a little bit about your uh, politics addiction. But, but but before we get to that, I do need to congratulate you up front. I know you saw this because I, I sent it to you, but you were named one of the best dressed at the White House Correspondents' Dinner by Congressman George Santos, who is doing kind of a Joan Rivers bit on Twitter. <laughs> It's kind of weird because he dresses like a four-year-old minor royal, but as an adult, you made the winner's list. Well, he's good people, you know. <laughs> he really is. <laughs> you know, Tim, I think you're selling him short. I think George really pays a lot of attention to this stuff. Wait, the details, I don't know if you noticed this, but on his wrist, as a watch guy knows, he wears a Cartier. What model? The Cartier Santos. Really? Ah, get it? How does he afford that? Or stolen? Well, I mean, I assume it's fake like everything else. But even so, I think he tries. I'm excited about that. Um, it seems like it. I was listening to you. I forget on one of the other podcasts you did. And you talked about how that during the pandemic, the MSNBC logo got burned into your TV screen. I wanted to start there. And I was like, man, this guy seems like he needs an intervention. Then I went to your Twitter feed to like see your recent tweets. Can I see that you said anything interesting that I should bring up? I worry that we need to confiscate your phone and television and that you could use like a dark mess retreat. Well, I hate to say when we uh, came up on the sim, I absolutely recognized the plants. I recognized <laughs> the pinto beans thing very Aware of your, your hair changes. Good or bad on the hair changes. I like them both. I think you can't go wrong. Thank you. At one point, my wife accused me of dressing her like Katie Turr. <laughs> it's a little embarrassing. You dress your wife? Like you got her a gift and it was like a pantsuit? No, it was a striped blazer. I assume this is just love play. And you bought it for like for... Like a mm. birthday or something? Yeah, yeah. That looked Katie Turr-esque? Yeah. Interesting. I'm going <laughs> to let Steph Rule know that you are modeling you know, after Katie and not her. I don't think that she's going to like that very much. Okay. On a more serious note, like, you know, this addiction stems from where? Like from your booking on the West Wing, from Trump no. fear, from your childhood? Like, let's get on the couch a little bit. I grew up in a Quaker family where basically... The whole point of whatever religious training I had was that faith had to be put into action. It was a very progressive tradition I grew up in. When I wasn't in Philadelphia being a Quaker, I was born and then went back in high school to Madison, Wisconsin, which has an incredible progressive tradition. Politics was very alive in my house. My brother was a conscientious subjector who at one point, I remember my mom weeping because he, at one point, he 
ended up not having to go to prison, but was going to go to prison. So the consequences of politics were alive in the house. I was born in 1959. One of my earliest memories is my mom, again, uh, weeping when JFK was shot. Everybody who we worshipped, it was a traumatic time, obviously, but I'm like the mistakes friend in my family. My parents had three kids, 10-year break, my brother, the mistake, I'm the mistakes friend. So my parents were like 40. <laughs> it's a great title. It took me a second. I was doing the math on that. I was like, okay, yeah. got it. Yeah. The mistakes buddy. But my parents went through the first pandemic, the horrible times during the 30s. They got married. My dad went off to war. But there was the Red Scare, but there was this sense that we internalized that the world was actually going to get better despite the sort of horrific, confusing polarization and events of the 60s. And I was growing up in what I knew was a very progressive Quaker household. I thought, well, there must be another side to the reason that we're having this war in Vietnam. And the older I got, the stupider I realized it was. And I was doing West Wing, but it was more that my children were born. I had young kids. And I felt very strongly that when the newspaper was hitting the driveway, I felt like their future was being attacked. When we were going to war without a plan, it felt like the Republican Party was on the rise under Bush, and we were treating the planet with contempt. And it was that combined with the access that I suddenly had because politicians had never been treated with any respect in storytelling, <laughs> unless they were sentimentalized, but usually they were mocked. Yeah, this created some problems, which we'll get into in a little bit. But yeah, that's true. I get it. But there were a lot of issues that I really cared about. And I was ambivalent about it. You know, I remember seeing Ben Affleck talking about trade in China, and I was just thinking, man, my heart just kind of sinks a little bit in the way I think everybody's does when celebrities are yammering on and on. But ultimately, I felt like, well, I'm going to try to use the platform that I have from being lucky in this high school extracurricular activity. And there's nothing more democratic than telling other people to shut up, so they should shut the fuck up. And then, of course, it was always self-appointed celebrities who, on the right, who were chiming in about politics, whether it were Bill O'Reilly, Sean. These are people who wear makeup for a living, just as I do. That's true. And I actually had come to a place where I do think that Anybody who's lucky in Hollywood is absolutely deserves to be uh, treated with suspicion and mocked. But I'm actually proud of a lot of the people who are active politically in Hollywood because I don't see anybody advocating for our own interests. I don't think you need to worry about what 
Julia Louis-Dreyfus is not asking for more money. I think you need to worry about the corporations. Well, like a soft, soft dictatorship run by Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Nobody's pushing themselves for that. Yes. You know, kind of like Donald Trump is. You don't tend to see that, at least so far. No, she's not asking to make reproductive decisions for other people. And then the world has just gone completely batshit to the point where even your wine has turned. That's true. We're going to get to that. All right. You get the last five minutes to pick on us. But uh, I want to go to, because you coming from that progressive tradition that you laid out, there's a, a big kind of critique of the West Wing kind of from the left, right? That like maybe you guys were too Pollyanna, that there was a sense that bipartisanship was an end in itself. That was something good. How do you kind of perceive that now? Does that resonate with you in, in looking in retrospect? Or you think those are like lefty online cranks who should, who should shut up and think about all the possibilities that we could achieve if we just work together? Look, you know, yeah, it's fake. It's, it was a, a TV show. Aaron's goal was not to serve civic vegetables, I think even he would admit this, a pathological need that is at the core of any bunch of storytellers to, you know, keep the audience's attention more than it was to serve an agenda. The agenda was totally mirrored my pragmatic progressivism, and I think which was very close to Aaron's. I mean, it's ridiculous to see it as a model of solving something. The fakest thing about that show, by the way, was that we had rational Republicans. I mean, that was the fakest fucking. You know, you had Arnold Vinnick, which was my kind of Republican. I mean, I'm watching the show, and this is, you know, you drew me into the show. Oh, so I yeah. was like, man, I love this guy. Arnold Vinnick is a Tim Miller Republican, you know, running against Santos toward the end as the Alan Alda character. But had you presented Republicans like Sarah Palin or, God forbid, Donald Trump, like you would have been ridiculed by Absolutely. you already ridiculed by conservatives but they would have gotten on their high horse and like you hollywood liberals oh, like yeah. you're out of touch with what republicans want republicans want william f buckley you know they don't want these clowns that you're portraying us as but you did the opposite yes of and this is the thing that i always find amazing being constantly accused you know for the last 25 years of being a condescending out of touch liberal hollywood guy if I'm doing an interview with Variety for something and I were to say, are you recording? Good. This is what your readers need to know about Bradley Whitford. I am incredibly rich. I'm phenomenally rich. And the reason I'm rich is I am the greatest actor who ever lived. Again, my work in Revenge of the Nerds 2, colon, Nerds in Paradise. Everything I've done is brilliant. And uh, Christian Bale sucks. He's a shitty actor. My stupid, whatever this is, showbiz career would instantly be over. I'm from Wisconsin, so I go back all the time. It's obviously an interesting place politically, which I would love to talk about. But I've been with people next to people running for president, you know, running for Senate, running for state office, local office, mayors, and they're constantly justifiably terrified that they will seem condescending or say something that might be interpreted as condescending. So this Trump thing is just, I mean, not only an idiot from show business, the biggest <laughs> idiot 
from show business and the worst human being. My first day, <laughs> this is true, in New York City, I went to Juilliard after I went to college, 1981. 1981, and I walk into the changing room and these guys are slamming the lockers and swearing because these fourth year guys had spent the summer working for this real estate guy who never paid them. They had just confronted him and he said, what are you going to do, sue me? You're fucking actors. And that was how I became aware of Donald Trump, who is, you know, a joke and a psychopath. And I'm jumping around a little bit, but from my unique perspective, having been an advocate in politics and making my living on TV, you know, you can have an affair with an intern in the Oval Office, you'll be forgiven. You can go to war based on false intelligence without a plan. You'll be forgiven. The death penalty in politics is reserved for my stupid concern, which is being bad on TV. It is unforgivable. Howard Dean screams, get the fuck out. I, I, you know, you're done. Al Gore seems kind of condescending. We don't want to see it. And I guess the perverse logical, you know, extension of this is a reality TV star who is hard to take your eyes off of. It's like encountering basically because of his shamelessness. It's like encountering somebody on the street who's not at the mercy of gravity. It's riveting television like a car wreck is. But it's not great for, you know, kind of policy nuance. Yeah. You, you can't be boring on TV, right? You can you can be bad on TV, but you can't be boring. That's what they don't want. I actually wonder if Dean would be better suited to today's politics, yeah. weirdly enough. You know, I, I got a question for you, Bradley. You said that the thing the West Wing did that was unbelievable was having, you know, Republicans who you could work with. This is an ongoing conversation we have at the Bulwark with each other, with other people all the time. Was it always thus? Was it always like this? And just people didn't realize it. Uh, you know, is Trump the logical extension of, you know, Barry Goldwater and, and you know, the conservative movement? Or did something shift and something happen? And I look, you know, the West Wing comes on. Bill Clinton is in office, right? We've had, you know, the faces of the Republican Party have been uh, George H.W. Bush, who, you know, whatever you think of him, was a, you know, reasonably moderate guy who had lived a long life of service to the country. The Republican nominees for president were Bob Dole, who was just like Mr. Compromise. Reagan served eight years as president, got a lot of legislation passed, all with a Democratic Congress for virtually the entire time of his presidency. And then sort of Things seem to break. I don't know. I mean, just after the first black guy gets elected president, who could say why? Maybe that's just coincidental. I don't know. I always felt like the Republican Party was always vulnerable to, I felt like even back then to this kind of exploitation. I mean, I remember beginning voting issues were coming up in Wisconsin. I didn't see Trump happening. And it is absolutely different. And I think it is because we had a successful black president and there's always been a large percentage of this country that is, I guess, proudly racist. Yeah. That stuff's not as far in our past as a lot of people think. Yeah. I, you know, just with Jim Brown's passing, I was looking at 
video today of him on the Dick Cavett Show. Um, Tim won't remember who that is, yeah. but you and I do. I do. And, uh, you know, the Dick Cavett Show is not ancient history. It's not black and white. It's, you know, it's like a thing that happened not five minutes ago, but like an hour ago in terms of American history. And Jim Brown is on there sitting, having a conversation with the governor of Georgia, Lester Maddox, who is explaining why, you know, he's proud of his white race and why we shouldn't have integration and why people who love their race should be allowed to say, hey, you look at this, and you're like, this is being broadcast on, you know, but there are only three networks. You know, 40% of America was seeing this. And this was just normal, rational discussion. And this is not like Civil War stuff. This is not Jim Crow, you know, set back during the days of To Kill a Mockingbird. This is like very recent history. I remember that conversation. Didn't Dick Cavett call him a bigot? And he said, you have to apologize. And I think Dick Cavett said, if you're not a bigot, I apologize. <laughs> in my lifetime, the vast majority of the black people in the South couldn't vote. You know, yeah. my entire horseshoe hanging out of my ass, gee, I think I'll become an actor existence is not because my father was rich, is not because I was given a lot of money, but it was because my father and my grandfather, unlike Wendell's father and Wendell's grandfather, could get a fucking mortgage. So, sure, I think the West Wing was maybe smug about the uh, durability of uh, of our democracy. And I think it gave us a false sense of inevitability of it. I used to get defensive about it because everybody loved The Sopranos and we were this kind of sentimental show. And some reporter was asking me about it, saying like the West Wing was fantasy. And I was like, you know, I actually don't think that like six people who work in the White House who really believe in the guy who's president is a fantasy. I think a mob guy in therapy is a fantasy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> One thing I do think, tons of stuff is fake about the show, obviously, because we are storytelling and heroicizing. One thing that I think the show got right, the quandary for my character and the quandary to some extent of each one of the episodes had something to do with the idea of how dirty do your feet have to get without you disappearing in the mud in order for you to get an inch of what needs to be done, done. Which I think is an heroic struggle. I think you can't take away how the values of show business and the way we communicate about politics has made things worse and more polarized. I've done a number of sort of quasi-political panels on TV, the last thing they want to hear in my experience is for somebody to go, wow, that's, that's an interesting point. I haven't thought about it like that. If Anderson Cooper's talking about healthcare, we're going to have a single-payer guy. It's going to be predictable. We need conflict. Yeah. And... I worry less about the influence of showbiz people on the political process than the adoption of the values of show business by the political world. I think the right has always understood that politics is the truth, which is that politics is the way you create your moral vision. We tend to think that it's culture, what we do. But 
I always say that West Wing won't help you if you have a pre-existing condition. You actually have to pass a law. Handmaid's Tale, huge hit, won't help you if you uh, got raped and you're 13 in Ohio. And I believe that's part of the reason we have a kind of tyrannical minority rule. This is a huge simplification, but I think the right is basically pursuing a business agenda that they use a lot of libertarian nonsense to justify that is fueled by culture wars. But for them, it is not an extracurricular activity. It is part of their business. The NRA is at every committee meeting. They do not need to be summoned to action by horrific tragedy. We as a country and the more progressive-minded have seen black person after black person shot in the back by cops. It takes the horrific strangulation of a human being in real time to summon us to the diagnosis, which is absolutely necessary. But we tend, I think, to not participate in the political process which is necessary, which includes being, you know, aware of things like, oh, we're going to lose the Supreme fucking court. The macabre observation on that is like everyone kind of self-assesses that the other side's doing it better. Like that a, a common trope on the right, like among the Andrew Breitbart, Steve Bannon crowd is like politics is downstream from culture. We need to do better oh, really? at that. We need to have more Bradley Whitford. Like we need to have like famous people that are doing. And so they assess that. But I think that your assessment is, Correct. It's funny that not funny. It's macabre that you know they they haven't looked at the last forty years and seen victory. It's part of the reason why we end up here, right? A lot of conservatives look at the last forty years and see defeat because they've had cultural defeats, like despite the fact that they've had you know policy victories. Because most of these guys, as we found out during the Trump era, aren't motivated by policy, really. They didn't really care that much. There's a small percentage of people that cared deeply about changing the abortion week restrictions, but what they really wanted was dominance, and they feel like they've lost that. And so now they're trying to assess, how can we regain it? More positive side of the West Wing thing that I'm, maybe positive isn't the right word, but uh, JVL wrote in his newsletter about how Joe Biden is kind of like the moderate president that everybody says that they want, but nobody <laughs> gives him credit for it. And I was, I was curious if you feel that way, right? Like that if there is a Bartlettian- He is. He's Jed Bartlett. Kind of. He maybe isn't good at the speechifying. You know, Aaron Sorkin isn't writing for him. John Meacham is. And, you know, he has his own Delaware stutter that he's dealing with. But like, he's resisted the excesses of the left. Despite the Republican Party's like insanity, he's cut two or three pretty big deals on chips and on infrastructure. People say they want it, but they don't. So anyway, I wonder how you'd react to kind of that notion. He's been much more effective than I ever expected he would be able to be. And in very progressive ways that I think please the left that have surprised me in the Infrastructure Act, a lot of the climate stuff is extraordinary on guns. The danger is that the left always seems to believe that they will be rewarded for governance. And I don't think that's necessarily true. 
the child tax credit, you know, is this extraordinary and it went away and the Democrats get no credit for it. Yeah, you're tickling JBL's erogenous zones right now. Oh, this I is am. like a major theme of his. <laughs> I, I am. Well, let me lick my fingers and go a little deeper. You know, we expect to get rewarded for it. We should be rewarded for it, but it's not exciting to watch on TV. It's more exciting to watch Marjorie Taylor Greene tear a Trans Lives Matter banner off her colleague's door. That's better television than we fixed it. Has everybody read uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman? Because everybody needs to. And what's interesting about that book in terms of West Wing too is he's like the worst kind of, most damaging kind of television is television that it attempts to be edifying or educational in any way, which I think is part of the way people critique the West Wing. I have a different critique coming from my, you know, former Republican life of some of your work. I want to move to The Handmaid's Tale really quick, do a little politics overlap. Okay. Um, you know, I, it gets a little cringy for me sometimes. Like there's some of the actor and actresses that are like doing The Handmaid's Tale tour and they're like, ooh, we're in a pre-Gilead society now. And, you know, the people at The Handmaid's Tale protests, like going around with Mike Pence events. And I get that there's trying to shock and all this. And I get that we're three men right now talking about this. But do you worry a little bit about that there's a backlash to this, like that there's this over-catastrophizing Hollywood tendency to want to talk about how society is going to shit when like a lot of people's everyday lives there's some people who have very real concerns right now, obviously the 13-year-old rapes that you were just mentioned, you know, people at the border, but a lot of people day-to-day, everyday life in Wisconsin, they don't feel like we're on the on the cusp of The Handmaid's Tale. And it feels like folks have gone a little Looney Tunes when they start saying that. Yeah, I read that book in 1985 when it came out, and it seemed a lot farther off than it seems to me to be now. I mean, I would be more open to that idea six years ago, but I've trans people in my family who I feel are not safe. I have many trans friends, people in that community who are really not safe, not only from violence from the outside, but from getting the the support they need to live their lives in a healthy way. I feel like the gay community is in a very fundamental way being, you know, kind of, I don't know, lesser Americans. I'm really alarmed with the erosion of abortion rights. And I just saw there's a great play called Leopoldstadt that is exactly about assuming if you are uh, an integral part of the culture, you are safe. And don't worry about those lunatic fascists. You know, nobody's going to fall for that bullshit. And I think what The Handmaid's Tale gets right that is alarming to me is weaponizing Christian fundamentalism. It's basically what Trump did and people's willingness to sort of follow that. So I get your point, but I think that's a really bad example. (laughs) That's, okay, that's fair. No, no, that's fair. <laughs> I think it is reasonable to be extremely alarmed. I, I think that 
Also, sometimes, you know, JV always has a bit on this where it's like, oh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, like, insults people in the most base way. And, like, she's, like, the most powerful person in the House of Representatives. And then there is a both sides class that says, oh, some actor, you know, says that we're on the cusp of Christo-fascism. And it's like, that means they're crazy, too. And it's like, well, that's kind of silly. Like, it's okay. Everyone can express in their art their varying levels of alarm. Um I want to ask you about Get Out really quick, and then we'll get to Juilliard. But I want to follow up on the trans folks in your family. I'm just wondering how that's impacted you. You also did the show Transparent. Is that what it was called? Transparent? It was good. Um, and um, I was just curious to hear more about that from a personal perspective. Well, I, you know, it was a very personal thing. And my nephew transitioned a long time ago, and I'm really alarmed by the targeting of this. To go to The Handmaid's Tale fascist, perhaps non-overreaction, it is precisely, I don't know if you've noticed this, Tim, but sexuality and gender kind of short people out and (laughs) otherizing people and targeting a vulnerable group like that can unify people and not to go back to the Hitler trough, but you know, the documentary footage you see of the books burning are at a guy named Magnus Hirschfeld's clinic, which is a place that was acknowledging that homosexuality was not a choice, that was making a distinction between gender and sexuality and acknowledging a spectrum of gender. And that's the first place the Nazis went to to burn the books. Like, it's really alarming to me. And again, there's an ongoing epidemic of suicide in that community. So the sort of casual political football of it all is just obscene. When I was in high school, nobody was out. When I was in college, two guys were out. When I went to acting school, everybody was out. And every all my mentors and I remember... Uh, reading in the Village Voice about gay pneumonia. And then this horrible crisis happened that the president was ignoring. And I would go back to Wisconsin and the perception in the 80s of homosexuality, you know, people were alarmed and disparaging about it. I would always say, hey, I've been taking showers with gay men for the last 10 years. It's no problem. They're human. Nobody's doing anything they don't want to do. And the backtracking on that feels weird. You didn't feel groomed at Juilliard? You didn't feel groomed? No, no. Okay, JVL has to get to Juilliard, but I just I have to ask you one question about Get Out. I have this opportunity to talk to yes. you, and I'm doing the Get Out question, and then JVL gets yeah. it. The Obama third term joke, when you read it, how owned did you feel by them writing that for you? I don't know if I've ever seen a fictional scene where the fictional actor character says a line where they're just completely owned by the person that wrote it because that is Bradley Whitford and it was your character and you were being mocked. Absolutely. I laughed when I read it. Jordan Peele wrote that line. I asked him at one point why he thought I would be good for this part and he said, I just thought it'd be funny to see Josh Lyman take the top of someone's skull off. I made the mistake at some point I was making a joke about it. And I, I said on social media or something, or somebody saw me say I was making a joke. And I said, yeah, I didn't realize that was a joke. 
and then all these people are like, you're, you're such an idiot. You're so stupid. Yeah, yeah. I think about this a lot. In my peculiar life, I spent a lot of time doing theater and regional theater, growing up as an actor. And the first thing you learn is do not go to the after play discussion. <laughs> it's like, don't read the comments. Yeah. Some subscriber at Manhattan Theater Club, which sleeps 499, is going to say, I just don't think you're very good, you know, or I didn't get it or I was bored. You learn very quickly, do not go to the after play discussion. Now, because of social media, the entire world is an afterplay discussion, and it's a difficult way to function. Do you read your comments on stuff? We have. The Bulwark commenters are so great. It's such a joy, um, and we've cultivated a great community. My Twitter replies are a uh, are cesspool, and I've just started blocking because it's hard. It is hard. I like... I used to like go on MSNBC and then immediately search my name. This is so embarrassing, but like it's just important to be embarrassed because like it's like I want to know what people think. Like was that was it good? Was it not good? And now I try very hard to not do that. But it's human nature, you know. You do want to get feedback, right? I tried a lot harder. You didn't use any lube when you were reading that. I didn't use any lube. I was I just kind of you know I just start kind of doing this and reading my own comments. Yeah, I I will say I did go to the Amazon reviews of my book and like clicked on one star. And my husband's like, what are you doing? Like, why are you doing that? And I'm just like, I don't, I can't help myself. It's compulsive. JVL, you're up. Juilliard. I'm obsessed with Juilliard. have been my whole life because I, because I didn't get uh, it. That's why, okay. you know, it's the club that wouldn't have me. I am curious as to how you got in, what you did. Val Kilmer's documentary. I don't know if you've seen that in the last year or so. It's absolutely beautiful. He talks about how he did comedy. You know, everybody else is going super serious. And he was just like, no, I'm going to make people laugh. Uh, and and I love that idea. What it was like for you, what the community was like, what the experience of being just surrounded by the level of talent that you get at Juilliard, which is unlike any place else in the world in any other, you know, it, picture like MIT for astrophysics, but but more so, right? You know, kicked up a notch for people who aren't familiar with what Juilliard is. And then what it was like for you post-Juilliard, because, you know, it does seem like some people get a fast pass into their careers. I love thinking about the careers of Renee Elise Goldsberry and Philip Sue. So two actresses who both wound up in exactly the same place, which is Hamilton and then absolute superstardom. But the roots they took are so different, right? Renee Elise Goldsberry toiled in the vineyards for decades. She was like a backup singer on Ally McBeal. She's one of the greatest voices I've ever heard in the history of, of humanity. But, you know, and she had to, like, work and sweat and, you know, went back and got a, an MFA in jazz, you know, at USC, I think. And then you have Philip Sue who goes to Juilliard, and two years later, she's cast in Hamilton. And so it, I just, what is it? Because you were, a, you know, you're a working actor. You've been a working actor for a long time. Everybody discovered you with West Wing, which is when you became, like, you know, a household name. But you've been a working actor for, for forever, Right. So anyway, just go. Juilliard, go. I have very conflicting. I, I One of the greatest communities in my life is my class at Juilliard, which back when I, it started out as like 27 people and then went down to like 20 because they would cut people, which was brutal. It was a psychologically difficult place to be. If you talk to anybody who was an actor back then, I think it's a lot 
different now. There were a lot of what I called British acting Nazis who proudly <laughs> thought that intimidation was the best way to teach, which is an absolute crock of shit. One of my kids said to me once, just really casually, no offense, dad, I've seen dogs be good in movies, which is only devastating because it's absolutely true. One of the odd things about being a Juilliard is if you're a trumpeter or you're a pianist, there is a mountain of technique that you have to master before we can even begin to decide if you're, I don't know, gifted or talented in any way. On the other hand, dogs have been good in movies. There's no mountain of technique. Acting is different from learning all those other things. It's, I think it should be taught more like the Iowa Writers Workshop. Nobody who's any good at acting, and I mean nobody, is really dogmatic about it. It's very personal. If you tell me I'm overacting, it's going to be something, mean something different to me than it is to Jim Carrey. Um, and I wish that they had been a little less kind of abusive and just sort of let us perform more. On the other hand, I'm really grateful that I just, you know, I told my dad, I, it, you know, think of it as med school with guaranteed unemployment at the end. <laughs> but I got to just act and go into debt and act in parts that I would not normally be allowed to act in because once you get into the world, they want you to be a closer version of yourself. Stage makes you more audacious. The luckiest thing about my career is I've been able to mix it. I think stage gives you an audacity, but film, you cannot lie. And I feel really lucky about being able to combine those things. Our class got together, this group, and there's like three of us who are making a living, you know? And none of them are women. The business is still extremely sexist in that way. Wendell Pierce, who is, I think, about to win a Tony Award. I remember Ving Rhames. Remember Wendell being very upset because Ving Rhames, who was a year too older, said, you know, get your crepe hair out because you're going to be playing all the old men because that's all they do with the African-American kids here. I feel so much luckier than I ever thought I would be. And I still find this business like really disorienting way to live. There are these experiences like West Wing, which will never happen again. I mean, that was 22 episodes of an incredible closeness. Now, you know, you're kind of shooting things in much smaller doses and you don't have that kind of community. And show business in general, it's like dating a schizophrenic. I mean, and I get more insecure as I get older because I know how lucky I've been. People say, how did you get on the West Wing? And if you track it back, I was really embarrassed because I was just playing assholes and I got Revenge of the Nerds. And in Revenge of the Nerds was this guy, Tim Busfield, who was really interested in theater. And we went to a one act festival and then he got replaced Tom Hulse and A Few Good Men. And Tim Busfield said to Aaron, this guy really understands your stuff. And Aaron made me eventually the lead in A Few Good Men. But I almost didn't get Josh Lyman. I don't know who, but somebody turned down my part in Get Out. 
it feels really insecure. Feedback from me in West Wing, which was absolutely a really good audition. I don't believe that about me all the time. You know, he's not funny. He's not sexy. It's not going to work. Um, we, uh, it's been such a good show. It's been so long. We're over already. I have so many things we didn't get to. You have a new Orleans show you're doing. You're in the Brady campaign. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about guns with you. There's the writer strike. You had a great tweet about making fun of Zaz and Max the other day that people should look at, but we've got rapid fire. We have to do it. Three rapid fire questions. And then you might have time to ask one burning question about why we voted for George W. Bush. Okay. Are you ready for the rapid fire section? Yes. It's got to be rapid. One thing you've changed your mind about as a grown-up? Uh, nuclear energy. Pro? You're pro no, now? No, I, I think there might have been a safer way to approach it that might have helped us with climate or transition. Hmm. Yeah. West Wing line people quote back to you the most. Uh, what, uh, what in God's name is happening right now? <laughs> <laughs> um, Adam Brody, when he was on this show, said that he thinks that Hollywood's fucked up and there's been too much of a glorification of guns in movies. Are you on board with that? change Hollywood reflection or do you think that he's being a pansy lib <laughs> as a Quaker I have, I have very mixed feelings about violence because drama needs conflict violence is a distillation of it I worry that we live in a society where our genitalia are the definition of obscenity and violence is seen as entertainment so I think it could use some introspection. I think violence portrayed with consequences is very effective. And then I look at the Greek plays and it's all about like sleeping with your kids and yanking your eyes out. So I don't know. That was thoughtful. That was a good rapid fire answer. Okay, finally, what about Josh Hawley do you find the most masculine? His lips. <laughs> Good answer. I would have said his shoulders, but he does have masculine lips. Okay, we have two minutes. Do you have any burning questions for us, or do you just want to save it for the green room? Well, I mean, you wrote a book about it. I did. You were in the first page. Josh Lyman is literally in paragraph three. You had to open that up and be like, I can't believe I'm on paragraph three of this book. I forgot that, not just because I'm on your podcast. I thought it was an absolutely terrific read. By the way, in my favorite genre, which is conservatives acknowledging how wrong they've been. We like to feed it to you. Bradley Whitford, thank you so much for doing Anytime. this. It was our great pleasure. JBL was so happy. JBL is parenting while doing this. He was so excited to do it that he is multitasking. He was rejected from Juilliard, but he did get to be on a podcast with Bradley Whitford. Not a bad life trajectory. We'll be here Wednesday for the normal Next Level podcast. Next Sunday, we have a great guest too. Not as good as Bradley, but really damn good. So come on back, subscribe, like, hang out with the bulwark. Get your Next Level lube. That'll be our TikTok. Turn the TikTok camera on. We'll see you guys next time. Peace. Peace. Peace.